0: Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Calvin Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Tommy Ames, a graduate student in the Philosophy Neuroscience Psychology, or PNP, program at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. We'll be talking about Tommy's transition from a career in business to graduate philosophy, his experiences in the PNP program at WUSTL, and his research on aphantasia and episodic memory. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Tommy, you can find his email address listed on his website, www.tommyames.com, and Tommy's also active on Twitter at, at @tommyames. Tommy Ames,
1: welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you so much. It's very nice to meet you. I gather that you uh, took a little bit of a gap between finishing your undergraduate studies and then going on to begin your graduate studies. So I'd be really interested to hear, first of all, what it was that you were doing in the meantime.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question because uh, when I first came out of undergrad, I was told by a mentor not to go into graduate philosophy. He said there were no jobs and even his friends and colleagues who went to Ivy's were not getting jobs then. So don't go into graduate philosophy. And so I took his advice. Uh, it was uh, Dr. Ronald Munson, who is a, a, an amazing bioethicist. And so I wanted to, of course, take his advice. And so I ended up getting a job at, uh, funny enough, an e-commerce store that was in the back of a hockey rink. They sold ice hockey equipment. I was a hockey player for a very long time, and I knew how to write. Most hockey players just aren't all that smart when it comes to, to writing, uh, or at least that's what I was told. So I had a pretty natural position there. I ended up going on to eHealthcare, managing some websites for healthcare organizations, doing consultancy um, around the United States. Went back into e-commerce with some of the the biggest brands that you could uh, imagine, for example, like New Balance Shoes and all of their sub brands and did a bunch of stuff for them. And I ended up becoming a vice president of data science at a marketing agency here in St. Louis doing basically data work and uh, analysis work on marketing campaigns for some very large brands around the world. Of course, I always found that that really wasn't all that interesting to me, and I may have been kind of good at it, but uh, it never really made me that whole. And at the same time, it really wasn't all that, uh, it didn't use a lot of my brain power, you know? And so I wanted to go back and, and hey, you know, let's go back and get a master's degree in philosophy because that's what I truly enjoyed. And so uh, I went back to uh, the University of Missouri, St. Louis, which is where I got my undergrad degree. They took a chance on me. And ended up with my master's degree. And in the meantime, just really fell in love with philosophy again. And so I wanted to pursue that full time, Um, you know, going back into academia, maybe the job market isn't as great (laughs) or is, uh, you know, it hasn't improved since uh, 15 or so years ago when I got my undergrad. But nonetheless, it's something that I truly enjoy. So that's what I did in the meantime.
0: Okay. So obviously initially you were discouraged from doing philosophy, but you sort of changed your mindset and decided to pursue philosophy, which is great. I suppose my question is, uh, do you find that after like, and en- entering graduate philosophy, after exploring other career options, do you feel like that gives you kind of any advantages or disadvantages, whether that's like academic or non-academic broadly construed?
2: Yeah. So I think there's advantages and disadvantages. So I, th- I think one advantage is that I do come with this life experience of understanding, at least in some way, about how the world works outside of academia. And so you can find these really interesting opportunities that maybe if you were in academia or if you haven't been exposed to you know, outside sources, you wouldn't really know how to pursue. So I'm able to use all of this experience, not just, you know, writing and business and uh, social networks and and all sorts of things that I can leverage to sort of get my name out there, get my research out there. I can look at things in a different way um, that maybe some other people might not be able to. At the same time, it can certainly be a disadvantage. I am now, you know, 38 going on 39, which is not your traditional PhD student age. Stipends don't go as far for me, um, especially when I live 45 minutes away from campus and I have a family of six kids and a wife and so I have all of these other things that it was kind of funny when I was applying for grad school um, I kind of considered it baggage because it's it's something that most other students don't really have at this point you know maybe maybe during their graduate education they get married or maybe they have a kid and sometimes you know people are unfortunately discouraged from having kids during their graduate studies and I don't think that that's right but uh, but nonetheless that's kind of the world in which we live so I kind of come with you know this Additional experience where I can find these opportunities and I can ask for opportunities where others might not. Uh, but at the same time, I also have to be a little protective of my personal time and my family time because there's so much of that that's going to impact the rest of my life. So it kind of goes both ways.
1: You mentioned there that you've heard that having children do- during your graduate studies is something that's discouraged. I'd be interested to hear, well, firstly, why people might have uh, suggested that and-, and also why you disagree.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I definitely think that this is something that maybe it occurs to women more than men, um, unfortunately, as well, because you can imagine the amount of appointments that it takes when you're pregnant and taking off time for raising the child and you know recuperating from having you know whatever procedure or whatever options you choose that can take a little more time um obviously and that's time that should be given to mothers and and parents of newborns that bonding time should exist for everyone at the same time it is often seen as maybe a break by others and that's true both in academia and outside of academia especially here in the United States where we don't have any time off guaranteed outside of you know whatever your job is willing to give you or um, what you're uh, essentially what you've built up from your company. and you're probably not going to get much more than that. Um, unfortunately, that's the world in which we live. So I think academia is kind of the same way. it's It's kind of, they discourage especially women from having children and taking that time off that they should have. And that's time away from research. It's time away from going to conferences and things like that. And that's that's something that we should work to change. Very well said. Is
0: there any advice you'd like give to your younger self or to any students who are unsure whether to like pursue uh, graduate studies in philosophy or maybe build a career outside of academia?
2: It's hard for me to want to go back and say, hey... You should have gone and gotten your master's and maybe gone on for a PhD earlier in my life. I think it would be very easy for me to say that at the same time i have all of these other experiences that have built me into the person i am today i didn't enjoy all of those experiences of course but those experiences still made me who i am i can definitely say that i wouldn't be living in the house that i do today um i wouldn't have the family that i do today had i made different choices and if i had been pressured to do certain things in a way that um i have not you know done them so in that way you know if i could go back and tell my younger self anything it would it would say you know Keep interested in this stuff. Keep up in the the academic world. It doesn't cost you anything to read an article every now and then, right? And make your brain work and think about things. And, and maybe you can do some independent research at the same time. Uh, maybe getting my master's a little bit earlier would have been kind of nice. But nonetheless, I'm pretty happy with where I am today, even though I may have less options than a lot of people do in academia and and the job market isn't that great. Uh, nonetheless, I'm pretty happy with where I am. And I love my family and I love where I live and, and things like that. And I love the things that I'm pursuing academically and professionally. So um, I can't complain too much with where I am.
0: Fantastic. And speaking of where you're at right now, which is the Washington University in St. Louis program in philosophy, neuroscience and psychology Bit of a mouthful. I suppose my question is, how interdisciplinary is this program? Is everyone a philosopher there? Or do people kind of enter from each of the three backgrounds?
2: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. So the faculty itself, it lives within the philosophy department. And of course, there's some some shared uh, research interests from psychology and, and other areas. I've taken classes, for example, from psychology and anthropology, but it does tend to be a very philosophically focused program. And then we have some requirements of taking some what you would call empirical courses from the other sciences. And um, of course, depending on what your research interests are, they don't have to just be psychology or neuroscience or biology or something of that sort. It could certainly be anthropology, sociology, whatever whatever your interests are. But the faculty themselves, they tend to be um, wholly from the philosophy realm. And it's a really interesting program because it does allow you to take these classes that uh, we might not normally be able to take. And and sometimes you do ask professors, it's like, hey, I'd like to take that class. And you're like, this is really for for sociology students or this is really for psychology students. And you might have to kind of negotiate with them a little bit of, you know, this is really my research interest. and I need this for an upcoming project that I'd like to work on. Usually people are willing to work with you on that. So it's a really great program that's been a lot of fun so far.
1: I'm interested in what you say about the way that the coursework works there, in that you can have the option of taking courses from, I think you mentioned anthropology, psychology as well. Because one difference that I I think I've heard between British and American graduate programs is that where we don't have the coursework element here, we just start our thesis from day one. So we kind of work on one area. But I'd be interested to hear how the PNP program relates to the more traditional core philosophy program in America where there is that breadth, but rather it's breadth within philosophy. So you do some value studies, you do some maybe epistemology, some metaphysics. How does it work in that respect? Do you still have the whole breadth within philosophy or is it even much more interdisciplinary than that?
2: Sure. So there are some different requirements and the program is always changing. In fact, as far as I'm aware, the cohort that was before me and my cohort and the cohort that is immediately after me, we all have three different kinds of requirements because the program is always changing, Um, which is good because it keeps up with, you know, not only what students can get out of the program, but it also kind of changes with career options and the the ability to find interdisciplinary careers after the program. So the ways that it it really works is there are certain requirements. There is, for example, a survey uh, requirement that is for the first six semesters of one's program. And these surveys tend to be, um, these survey courses are like Social political philosophy or ethics or mind or, and you know, it's your, your big, you know, your typical big six philosophical subjects. You are also required to take four research classes. And these may be something like memory or the epistemic and the practical, which is a course that I'm taking right now with Matt McGrath, uh, which is an amazing course, an amazing professor. So you still get these core classes that uh, most people would get. And then you also get some really uh, in-depth research classes. And then the PNP starts coming in by your four elective empirical classes. And these, again, can be from any sort of department, as long as it's you know pretty relevant to what your research interests are. So now you get sort of a meshing of your core philosophical concepts along with your empirical 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 concepts that sort of inform what your research is going to be. And of course, there's a foundations of philosophy course that you should take. It's more like, you know, advanced logic, things like that. And then another really interesting one that I, uh, admittedly, I've not taken yet, because I know that I'm going to struggle with it, but is a basically a research methods class for psychology or like a stats class. You can you can take it either way. Now, if I haven't taken a stats class, uh, well, hmm. for that matter, ever. And I have not taken a math class in probably 15 or so years. So it's going to be um, very interesting for me to take a class like that. But two, when you're reading psychological studies and things like that, you should know exactly how those statistical models work.
0: So would you say then, in just on the whole, that you get all the benefits of being part of all three departments? Would you say like that's your overall verdict of being in this program?
2: I would definitely say no on that question. And the reason why, you know, many of the psychology faculty are very open to us taking classes. So that's not really a problem, but it's not like we're a part of a lab. And that's something I've talked to my mentor about. You know, it would be really great to be part of a psychological lab. And that way you're actually doing hands-on research. You're understanding, you know, the methodology, the results, the impact that type of research has. And at the same time, you know, that sort of opens up the breadth of your ability to do research in that area and publish in those types of journals. So at least in terms of that question, I would say no. At the same time, I do think it opens up some opportunities for teaching in the future. And that's one of the reasons why I really want to do this program um, is because we don't know what the job market really looks like, right? And there are quite a few philosophers who have come out of this program, either as students or as postdocs, who have basically cross-listing abilities to teach in psychology or other disciplines. And so having that ability kind of opens up the job market, maybe a little bit more for me over somebody else that sounds like a huge benefit indeed in such a competitive
1: job market (laughs) yeah to move on to the research that you've recently been doing so i gather that you haven't begun work on your doctoral thesis yet but one of the projects that you are pursuing relates to aphantasia i'd be interested first of all if you could just tell us a little bit about
2: what aphantasia is Absolutely. So aphantasia is essentially when you don't have a mind's eye, and that might sound a little funny for most people. And in fact, it sounded a little bit funny for me before I realized that that's exactly what I have. So I have always wondered why I was never very good at art. And of course, I'm, pr- I'm sure that there are some aphantasics who are very good at art. But I always kind of wonder, like, why am I not good at it at all? And I'm like, if only I could see it, I would be fine. Like, if a shoe is in front of me, I can draw the shoe. But the second I try to think of a shoe, I know... I no longer can envision a shoe. I can't draw a shoe. It comes out terribly. And my mom would make fun of me for it when I (laughs) used to take art classes back in high school. And so then I realized, oh, like I can't see in my head. Uh, That's kind of interesting. And it seems like all these other people talk about a mind's eye or having mental imagery or visualization. And those are all things that I can't do. So it turns out that in some relatively recent research, they've named this aphantasia, or you may hear it as aphantasia. either way. And it's a really interesting concept where people don't have a mind's eye. And so this has a lot of implications in uh, different areas of philosophy, for example, mental representations, contemporary debates in memory, and all sorts of other areas. So this kind of naturally fit into my own research area. At what stage
1: was it that you realized that you have aphantasia? And is there maybe a, a normal age at which people discover that? Is it something that people realize very young? Or is it something that people only realize a bit later
2: upon reflection in their lives? I think it's the latter, especially because there are so many people when when I talk about my research, I usually start it off by this way. Imagine what a horse looks like. And then I'll say, okay, on a scale of one to five, one being that you didn't see a horse at all in your head and five being that you can see a very vividly a horse in your head you start to see there's a gradation, first of all, you know, maybe the threes, they kind of see the horse for a second, and then it's sort of, you know, fleets, it's a fleeting image, but there's quite a few people who will say fours and fives, and then you'll get a couple people who are like one and two, and they go, wait, like the other people can actually see the horse in their head for as long as they want, and so it's sort of a realization, Um, and these are mostly people, of course, who I'm uh, talking to who are in their, you know, late 20s, 30s, 40s, tenured professors, uh, who are just now real, that other people actually have this other phenomenological experience that they don't have. And what does that mean for their, their own uh, ways of thinking? So it's it's been pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And I think a specific part of your research is focusing on the idea of aphantasia and how it relates to another uh, idea, which is known as episodic memory. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about episodic memory and aphantasia's relation to it.
2: Yeah, so episodic memory are memories that relate to a specific event. And so usually these are spatiotemporally oriented. For example, if I remember back to my 16th birthday party, what happened there? Where did I go? What did I eat? What did I receive? Things like that. Those would all be contained in episodic memory. Now, there's a contemporary debate in the philosophy of memory of whether episodic memory only relates to the past or whether it may also relate to the future. And so you may hear this debate termed as the discontinuous debate. And essentially what it is, is that we may believe that the only difference between episodic remembering things that have happened in the past and our ability to episodically imagine things in the future really are only different because of the spatio-temporal orientation of that phenomenal experience. And so between whether it is my 16th birthday party that I've had in the past or whether I am imagining that it may rain next Tuesday. You know, some folks believe that uh, there's really no difference between the two. Now, some of this debate hinges on whether mental imagery is a thing. And this is especially true for these folks in this debate called simulationists. And simulationists believe that episodic uh, remembering is specifically to imagine future events. Now, how would a person who can't mentally visualize the future be able to imagine the future? And that's one question. So you have some philosophers, for example, uh, Vince Nene, uh who uh, has amazing research on mental imagery um, and memory. So I have to argue explicitly against him by saying, well, there are some of those out, or some of those folks out here like us who don't visualize mentally. And what does that mean for the debate? So that's what a lot of my uh, my current research is focusing on. Is there any consensus right now as to whether people who
1: have a Fantasia, whether they can actually have these kind of episodic prospective
2: memories? Well, it seems like we can, uh, because I can certainly imagine that it will rain on Tuesday. It's very easy for me, at least semantically. And what I mean by that is without any sort of mental imagery, I don't have to uh, uh, imagine that there's going to be rain next Tuesday in a way that conjure some mental imagery, it seems like I can do that. Right. And I can um, have a prospective memory about all sorts of things, whether it's my next birthday or a car that I'm looking to buy, or maybe what my life will be like in five years, something of that sort. So it seems like I can still do all of those things without mental imagery. And so that's what the debate is about. Because if you're going to base episodic memory on one's ability to mentally conjure these visualizations, and there's some folks out there that don't do this, well, now that sort of changes the phenomenology of memory entirely. So that's what uh, a lot of the current research is about.
0: So I think we've gotten some suggestions as to where you might be positioned on this, but where would you say um, your research is on this topic right now? Are there sort of problems you think warrant further exploration or do you have any specific theses you'd like to advance live on air?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. So I'm not really sure because the research for aphantasia is still so in its infancy. Um, There's always more things coming out, not only fMRI studies, but, you know, other psychological studies. Um, There's, of course, all of these phenomenological conjectures that are made by philosophers and all sorts of things. So I'm not really sure that I have a specific thesis right now, except to say that it seems to me like simulationism or any necessary requirement that we mentally visualize our future just seems wrong because some of us don't do that. Um, Now, of course, in the debate, you will have some folks out there who say, well, mental imagery still happens. It's just on an unconscious level. And I don't think that that necessarily bears out in the empirical literature, but it is something that's continuing to, to go on in psychological research.
0: Switching to a kind of final note, in correspondence with us, you mentioned that you can think of philosophy or you tend to think of philosophy like a game. I'm curious to see what you mean by this, because I think it might relate to my own experience as well.
2: Sure, absolutely. So this this kind of comes from my professional history as well. It seems like there's levels, not only to life, but also professions. Academia is not excluded from this at all. And so as a graduate student, you might, for example, think of a graduate conference as something that you'd love to achieve, right? You're submitting your work there. You're getting some feedback about your research, you're getting validation about your research, and you get back some really nice comments, right? Um, But eventually you have to go on further. And so you might look at a small regional conference and you submit to that. And maybe it's the same work or another work that you're more proud of, or maybe something that you're a little more advanced in. And then you get in there, you give your talk, you get more experience, you get more feedback. And now you're ready to submit to a bigger conference. And maybe this is like an APA or maybe it's a bigger regional conference. Or uh, after that, you go on to a specialty conference or maybe an international conference or something of that sort. So, in a lot of ways, I've kind of viewed my CV building as a sort of game uh, where it's like, okay, now I've achieved the graduate conference. I need to stop going to these. I've already gone to two or three of them. You know, now it's time to go to your APAs. And it's like, okay, now I've I've now gone to seven APAs. I need to do more specialty conferences and I need to get more, you know, more interesting ideas for my research and more contemporary ideas for my research, things that I can start to publish. Now I've kind of In my mind, at least, I've sort of achieved in some ways the conference game, and now I need to go on to the publishing game. And now I've published a couple book reviews, and uh, and, you it's a pretty nice venue. And I got some really great feedback from the author uh, who I made comments for. So that was really neat. And now it's time to publish my own research. So in a lot of ways, I've kind of viewed my philosophical career as a game. Now, of course, one downside of that is that, well, this isn't a meritocracy right? And there's all sorts of people out there who have all the merit in the world, all the knowledge in the world, even all the social network in the world who are just still not going to find jobs. And so this is sort of my way to sort of build out my resume and my CV in a really interesting way and always move myself forward. But at the end of the day, who knows whether it's going to work or not. But nonetheless, that's how I view it.
1: That sounds like a really productive way of approaching things. Well, Tommy, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate the time and the invite. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.